Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Welcome to this episode of MHPN Presents in conversation with. My name is Shuri Tsuetani. I'm a psychiatrist based in Brisbane. And today I'm joined by Professor Sid Block, who's the Professor of Psychiatry at Melbourne University. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm really grateful that you've agreed to let me pick your brains today. I'm a psychiatrist who just started my professional life and I have so much to learn from someone like you. I've read many of your books. I, I read The Foundation of Clinical Psychiatry as a medical student. Uh, I read your psychiatric ethics as a, as a registrar, as a trainee, preparing for my exams. And I've also read your psychiatry past, present and prospect, which you edited with people like Stephen Green and Jeremy Holmes. And I have so much respect for your perspective and wisdom. I'm very grateful today that you, you've allowed me to ask you some questions to find out the things that inspire, sustain and keeps you going in your psychiatric practice. Okay, so, so I want to start off by asking you, why did you decide to work in the field of mental health? Why did you decide to be a psychiatrist? I guess uh, a number of reasons, although I was never quite sure. Um, I went through medical school. I had no idea what I wanted to be, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So uh, I can't say there was a particular moment in time in my history. But just uh, when I think back to it, uh, there were two or three things that really um, left an impression upon me as I was becoming a doctor, learning to be a doctor. Uh, And one was growing up in South Africa, which at that time was apartheid run, you know, total racism, Uh, I did my bit to try and deal with my own sense of conscience and guilt by going off to mission hospitals where I saw how mission doctors and nurses could relate to other people of another race and, um, and get to understand them. And I felt this was so important to understand the other. And it, it sowed a seed. And psychiatry eventually was the, the one area of medicine where you have to try to understand the other. Uh, because the other's, you know, it's very personal, it's very deep. Sometimes it's very difficult to get into empathizing with them. So that was one big thing. The other thing was that I did my internship in general medicine and then I thought the brain, you know, the brain's such a fascinating organ. And I did a year in neurology. And as the year went on, I saw how complicated that organ was. There was no mental health involved in that. It was you know, proper neurology and neurosurgery. But it just stirred my um, whole imagination about how does the brain function. So it was a combination, really, of the story of the other, you know. People are persecuted because of their race and, 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 and regarded as non-beings. And the science, you know, the, the, the wonders of the brain. And by the time I finished that year, second year, I thought... You know, maybe psychiatry lends itself to combining both those things. And so I got in and I th- it's worked out that way. And I think if people can benefit from working in mental health by thinking of both, if you like, the personal, the story, the, you know, the inner soul and the science, i.e. the brain, then that's all to the good for everybody. And I, I guess, I mean, the thing about psychiatry is, and that, that's something that I love about psychiatry is there are 
lot of things going on. So it's not it's not just neurology. It's、um, I think you talked about other people's stories, but there's all the cultural things,、um, social thing, political things, all sorts of stuff that can really impact on people's mental well-being or mental health. And I guess my second question is. As a psychiatrist, someone who's practiced psychiatry for such a long time, how did you navigate through the complexity of what you faced as a psychiatrist? How did you make sense、yeah. of your world? I just love that question. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of navigating through complexity. Now, that's it. If you're an orthopedic surgeon, and I broke my ankle、uh, five years ago, I went to an orthopedic surgeon. He repaired it. Surgery came out. Bit of rehab. I now do bushwalks, cycling, etc., etc. Now it's not quite the same with our field, and to navigate beyond the ankle joint, so to speak, I found it, it's a lifelong endeavour in my in my view. And the way I think I have res- not resolved it, but dealt with it, is by regarding the contextual nature of the work. In other words, what are the contexts? Another word I could use is framework. I'll use the word context just because you know it's perhaps the, the more useful word.、Uh, the context within which one works. So I don't only work scientifically, like I did, you know, in neurology with the brain. I don't just work, you know, in cultural terms, like you just mentioned. Words only know about indigenous psychiatry and nothing about any other group or, or religion and so on. So I have to draw up a, a number of contexts, and then the complexity you were mentioning is, the, I think, a really interesting one. You have to then work out how these contexts are all going to fit together. It's not as if you know this is context and that's the other one, and 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 this is the third one, and so on. Before we started. This episode, you you told me a little bit about your triangle. Well, I have used figures sometimes、yep. to help, and the triangle adds to what we're、mm. talking about—the complexity of navigation.、Mm. The particular triangle that we were referring to,、uh, we could label one point is science, the other point is art, and the third point is ethics. And I could add one or two others. Beyond the triangle, I'll just mention them anyway. The one that I is not mentioned there is historical, and the reason for that is that an historical context about all these things, you know, art, science, ethics, is relevant. It's so it's, if you like, you need to know the historical background or how things have worked themselves out, the forces that made. A difference about this rather than that, and so on. So that's the、um, what you might call the historical underlying framework. Let's call it that. And then I've got one here that's linked, perhaps, to ethical, but it's not completely the same. I'll call it philosophical. And by that I mean, you know, we all live our lives according to certain values. We have a certain perspective on life, a certain political outlook, and so on and so forth. And so I have drawn heavily over many, many years. On some of the great philosophers, you know, you can call that、um, part of the art, but I think it's quite—it's a bit separate, as we'll see shortly when we talk about the art. So it belongs to the humanities, but it's saying, look, when I read、um, some of the ancient Greek philosophers, it gives me such an insight into the nature of friendship. Now, I'm, here I'm quoting Aristotle. You know, two thousand four hundred years ago, one of the greatest minds of all time. And in his、uh, book on ethics, he's got a chapter on the nature of friendship, 
And, you know, a lot of patients come in, they say, you know, if only I had a friend, only be somebody I could uh, relate to and have a close tie with and so on. So that, that's what I mean a, a bit about philosophy. I mean, maybe we can start from the science part of that triangle and if you could expand the idea for us. Yeah, you can start at any, you know, in a triangle, yeah. you can start at any point. <laughs> isn't it? yeah. It's not a hierarchy, is yeah. it? It's, 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 uh, it's a three-pointed structure. Without science, mental health in every way, normal, abnormal treatment, progno- you know, prognosticating, you know, we might as well go and talk to wizards or magicians or whatever. And um, we have to acquire knowledge. So the word science comes from the Greek skientia, which means knowledge. And we're talking about knowledge of all kinds. Nowadays, it's mostly knowledge that's derived from a laboratory or a epidemiological study of you know how many autistic cases do you find in such and such a group and so on. So it's when you can measure, observe things, measure them, and and make sense of them, and even explain them. Psychiatry has a terrible reputation, a mental health coming to any final truth about anything. You know, 114 years ago. One of our forebears looked at the brain of um, Celeste, 52-year-old woman, and she had a degenerative disease. And so we had the beginnings of the the first dementia case that we know so well. Right, um, 114 years later, we don't know about the nature of dementia other than, you know, we can see certain changes in the brain and so on and so forth. So what we have to do in our field and what I think... um, we're obliged to do is be scientists by looking for the underlying factors or the explanations for certain behaviors, for certain events, for certain phenomena. I think um, a good example would be, if I may say, is genetics. So, you know, we discovered the genome around 2000. Prior to the genome, we had a very primitive way of looking at the genetics, the inheritance patterns of certain major psychiatric illnesses or mental illnesses. With genomes, we've come a little bit further, and we know, for example, in a disease like uh, autism, there are about 120 or so genes that are variants. They, they, they differ from the normal population, but we unfortunately don't understand what that means. So it's just one of the uh, schizophrenia, same sort of thing, same sort of number. But... If we could understand the genetic patterns of certain psychiatric illnesses, we would be, oh, miles ahead, you know, because we could say, look, Huntington's disease, you know, you've got a 50% chance of, and we know that from all the science. If we could say that about um, Alzheimer's and, and, you know, many other disorders, we could rule out, we could get rid of a lot of diseases that we, you know, horridly Im- impacting on us. So that's one you know, key example, I'd say. And uh, genetics has a huge role to play, and genomics, as they now call it, yeah. you know, even bigger. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. The other example would be, uh, say, neuroimaging. Yeah. You know, when I grew up as a young lad, we had something called the skull x-ray. Right, okay, <laughs> and you yeah. looked at the thing, and there was, the, you know, the skull and the bone, and then with the soft tissue, and that was about it. And you know, we had some one or two other primitive things, the encephalogram still going. You could actually measure the electrical waves patterns, and that was usually for your epilepsy. And you know, put electrodes on the on the surface of the, of the skull, and blah blah blah. All right, hang on now. That that was you know like two centuries ago. Now. 
we've got so much in the way of sophisticated neuroimaging. You know, we all know about MRIs, mm. magnetic resonance imaging. Mm. Um, not everybody may know about functional MRIs, mm. where you can actually get somebody to say something while they're in the MRI machine, say, I'm now hearing the voice that I hear all the time, and it's the voice of the devil. In other words, somebody's got a, a hallucination, and you can see the changes on the MRI pattern. So um, examples like that, there, there, there are hundreds of them. Yeah. Um, the only snag, no, I don't want to be a yeah. pessimist in this, the only snag is we have so much more to learn, you know, this area. And um, I can quote the, Tom Insel was the uh, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, the biggest research institute in the world. And after many years of leading it, and he retired not long ago, he wrote a book, just recently published, but he, he kept saying, you know, for, we have wasted 50 bloody years. He was just lamenting. Uh, and, and why? Because we haven't studied neuroscience. You know, the function of the brain we've not dealt with. And so we're running to look at schizophrenia and bipolar and so on when we don't know, you know, how memory works or how this works or that works. The thing is, you're going to wait 50 years while these people suffer. You know, you've got to do something in the meantime. Yeah. So you try drugs, which hopefully will work, and they may not be based on a full-blown finding in the, you know, in the brain, but they seem to work empirically and so on. So we soldier along. Yeah. And one other thing, Shreef, I may just add, in the course of my 50-odd years in psychiatry, we have acquired more science, scientific knowledge, yeah. than in all the centuries preceding that. Yeah. Just have to think about it for a bit. You know, in terms of psychopharmacology and genetics and, and epidemiology and, and you name it. So we've made some headway. I think Incel's doing a bit on the uh, hard side. Yeah. yeah. No, so that's, that's science in a nutshell. I mean, yeah. a lot, we could spend hours talking about the science. Before I go to the, the art angle of the yeah. triangle yes. i just want to say i guess science it's really exciting but you know again i don't want to be um kind of down about this yes. but you know we've had the the genetic or genome study for 20 years now we've had uh, mri the brain scan for what nearly 50 years now well not the well, 40, totally modern yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more recent yeah. but I don't do genetic testing every day for my patients. I don't scan people's brains every day. And I think there's, there's that thing about um, science is exciting, but we need, to, we need to be mindful that sometimes these things take time and it's, it's a good starting point. But there's, and we've come so far, but, um, but we can still, we've got so much to go. Well, you couldn't things. be more right. You know, <laughs> this is what I was implying in a sense that, as Insult said, you know, we've just touched the surface and we have 50 more years to go, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in the meantime, somebody's got to come to somebody who's suffering from the most severe depression imaginable. Yeah. And they've tried, you know, tried everything under the sun. This is neurotransmitter supposed to work theoretically and doesn't. And then somebody says, you know, we are attempting deep brain stimulation. What we do is we insert an electrode into a particular part of the brain. We think, you know, we theorize, maybe abnormal in treatment-resistant depression patients. So I've got colleagues in, in Melbourne who are doing very exciting work on yeah. DBS. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I shudder, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, putting down a needle, but they do that with uh, other um, physical disorders, yeah. you know, like Parkinson's disease. That's how it began. Yeah. 
they are the you know the, the point they are right at the vanguard of doing things which in the end may be disbanded i can't imagine we'll be using dbs later down the track when we know precisely you know why some people get so severely depressed they don't respond to this that and the other but guess what we have discovered they respond to certain neurotransmitters which we didn't even know about you know it was so we take from science what we can you know uh, because we can't afford to wait 100 years until we know exactly what no, Alzheimer's no. disease is about and so on. Should we move on to the next part, which yeah. is the art of that triangle? Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by uh, that? Look, what, I get yeah. very excited. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. I, I, I was quite excited talking about science, yeah. uh, but I've never really worked as a scientist, neuroscientist, mm-hmm. but I really admire what people do, you know, in the lab and the patience and the <laughs> perseverance and so on. But the art is something that... Everybody who's listening to this podcast can value and enjoy and get something from. And I I talk for myself, obviously, uh, and I hope you might be part of that story as well, because we have spoken a bit about uh, literature. Now, I can tell you in a nutshell that we're working with human beings. We're not working with ankles that break, right? And a human being comes and says, um, you know, I am black. Uh, Because we heard this today at the Congress we were both at. And I have suffered as a victim of racism. That's the beginning of a story. Nothing to do with science. It's to do with themselves. So I have learned not only to hear the stories that I'm being told. It's called literature, let's say. Testimonial literature of patience. Every patient's got a story and each story is unique. So that's, you know, that's the sort of, uh, for like the substrate upon which I'm thinking now as we talk. But you can also go to some of the, you know, the, the great writers, the great artists, the great musicians. And if, if we've got time, I can give you, you know, some quick examples of that. Uh, we discussed one or two um, not long ago. So we discussed Tolstoy, you know, the great Russian novelist, his short story novella called The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And we could refer you, uh, those who are listening in, to that story, uh, we'll put, give you the details of the story, but that's the name of the, the, the story. And look, in essence, in essence, it's about a, a man, he's a lawyer, he's married, he's got children, and he's doing, you know, he's ambitious, and he's doing pretty well. And lo and behold, something goes wrong, he develops some symptoms, and the story then unfolds, and guess what? He's got a, a, a lethal disease, and he's going to die. So it's, you know, it's called the death of an illage. And it's the nature of, if you like, hearing the news is not good and the news gets worse and worse and worse. And then the, the, the context around him is the family. And the family have always thought of him as a bit of a bugger, you know, just ambition, never had time for us as a you know, family. And he dies quite lonely in a lonely way. That story I've used with medical students for years to reflect all sorts of things. We could spend an hour just talking about that very story. Hopefully, we could do that one day yeah, when yeah, we, yeah. In, the, in the book club um, yeah. series. Yeah. But there are loads of bits of literature like that mm. that we can draw upon. Uh, poetry is another thing. I'm not a great... Um, I, I like poetry when it makes sense. You know? <laughs> but um, there are certain poems um, by William Blake, you know, British um, poet, and I'm, uh, no time for us to go into that. 
um, which will give you an insight into the nature of mother-bond relationships. Songs of Innocence, it's called. And uh, it's better than anything you know, you'd find um, anywhere else. There's also t- what they call testimonial literature. So you've got a novelist like William Styron, S-T-Y-R-O-N, American novelist, who developed the most ghastly depression on earth, and he called it Darkness Visible. It's become a classic, not long, originally printed as a sort of journal piece. And if you want to get an insight into the nature of depression, you go to William Starhorn. He's a patient, and he's a novelist at the same time. And there are many examples like that. Some people may, may know about Spike Milligan, you know, he was a great satiric, great comedian. He was the most severe bipolar disorder patient. And he did write a uh, more in an interview way about the nature of going high. You, you won't find that in the textbook, you know, it, it's something that stands out. Um, if I may just um, add a, a word or two about other forms of art, because the word is what we're mostly familiar with. We in mental health, we use words a lot. But guess what? We also use art therapy, music therapy, dance therapy. You know, there are many other forms of art, for goodness sake. And they all express certain things. And they're also, just while we're talking about this, they're also very healing. You know, to, to be a music therapist, is a, I think it's a gift, you know, if you love music and you can use music to help heal other people. What more could you ask for? So um, I'll give you one example of that, which will be sufficient. Schubert dies at age 31. Franz Schubert, 600 songs he writes. He also writes song cycles, and he writes one that's very well known by Schubert lovers, the Winterreise, stands for Winter Journey, and it's 24 songs about a man. Uh, it's about the voice, and he's lonely, and he's dying, and he's, it's, a, you know, it's a final journey of despair. And um, I took this particular song cycle through the, the voice of a very, very eminent singer and a pianist to a psychiatric congress in Adelaide several years ago. And the first opening session, the plenary session was, today we're going to be educating you about the loneliness of life. It's called the Winterreise. A lot of of people in the audience knew, but most of them didn't actually. And uh, they take 70 minutes, they sang the song, and it was followed by about 50 minutes of most very, very um, erudite discussion with, between the uh, performers and the audience. It's one of the highlights of my life. I'm not quite <laughs> yeah, as wow, exaggerating, yeah. but yeah. in terms of making the point about music and mental health, yeah. so every congress should start with a Schubert song cycle. He wrote several on different <laughs> themes. And then it should be a plenary, and then you should, not just a frivolous entertainment, you know, in the evening. I sing, by the way, uh, sung since I was age 24, um, and in choirs, and I currently sing, and without singing, I sort of get quite fretful. <laughs> so singing is also very healing, and yep. it's, it's spiritually satisfying. We all know yeah. about the benefits of music. Look, the other area, just to maybe wrap up this point about the arts, is art itself. Visual arts. That you know, I know, everybody's listening to this will know. Gosh, I know the, the work of uh, Vincent van Gogh, Starry Nights, or they'll have a picture in mind, which is when I see that picture, you know, it <laughs> gives me goosebumps yeah, or, or yeah. things of that kind. Uh, but you can tackle art in a more, um, if you like, a systematic way. So I'd, I've done this with teaching as well. 
um, uh, the most famous Norwegian artist of all time, really, Edvard Munch, M-U-N-C-H, Edvard Munch. So he uh, lives in the 20th century, uh, Impressionist art, and I won't really the opportunity now to go into the detail, but I would invite everybody who's listening to just Google yeah. Munch, M-U-N-C-H, and just get an idea about the nature of his art and look at some of his pictures and get your own impression about what can this fellow tell you about the nature of mental ill, not mental ill health, mental suffering or you know, ill-being, that type of thing. Everybody must know his most famous painting called The Scream. Uh, many, many versions of The Scream. There's a fellow who's crossing a bridge. He's, he's, uh, he's behind two others with whom he no doubt was in company with. Streams of red um, above him. This is like a violent sunset. And he, he's quoted as saying, I felt as if I was screaming. I can't remember the phrase, but it, it, it's like I was psychotic. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what, it, what it amounts to. So uh, he, he had his illnesses at different times. He was quite lonely towards the end of his life. You could follow his art right through, you know, yeah. and learn a lot about the nature of mental health and mental ill health. Yeah. There are thousands of artists, you know, who attract them, us yeah. because they, they are doing what we're just talking about. They, they're demonstrating yeah. the inner life of, of people. Yeah. And if they've been able to talk about it, like Monk did, doesn't matter if they did or didn't, um, because we know a lot about Van Gogh, for example. Yeah. I mean, he killed himself, 36. He was yeah. clearly uh, a morbidly depressed sort of mm. character, uh, cut off a, like, his ear and things like that. Um, so we can learn a lot about what was going on in, in his own life and what was going on in his painting, yeah. as a reflection in his painting. Yeah, and I guess it kind of comes back to um, what you were saying about... Um, getting to know the patient or getting to know the person with mental illness or distress. And I know we talked about famous people and famous pieces of art, but yeah. um, in some ways, every story that, that people tell you, that's, that's kind of like a piece of art or kind of, you know. I, I think that's absolutely right. Over the years, I have struggled, I'll have to say, to get allied health. Yeah. So people like occupational therapists, social, uh, sorry, yeah, dance therapists and to be employed, mm. but they regard that as mm, that's a bit frivolous. We, you know, we need extra nurses, and that's true. We, you know, we need more nurses because those sort of people, um, if they've been trained well, can help our patients tell their stories in not just you know, through an interview. Yeah. You know, tell me when your symptoms began, but by shedding, uh, drawing pictures. Uh, yeah. I've been involved with, um, just, just in, a, in, a, in, in one word, with the Eric Cunningham Dax collection. It's about oh, 17,000 yeah, works yeah. of art by people who uh, were mentally ill while they were painting. And uh, it's the largest collection of its kind of the world, based in Melbourne. Eric Dax was a good colleague and friend, and, and he, he essentially established art therapy in England, brought mm. to Australia. We've used that art for teaching purposes, and just, and these are patients, you know, they're not famous artists, obviously along the lines of your question. Now, I want to move on to the next part of the triangle, and I guess we talk a lot about science of psychiatry, we talk quite a bit about art of psychiatry, but you mentioned that the other 
angle of the triangle is the ethics. Yes. And what do you mean by that? What, what, can you explain what that means? Uh, do we have four hours or yeah. three? <laughs> I think we have to have a follow-up conversation yeah. on what do we mean about ethics in psychiatry or in mental health? Well, look, this is a summary. <laughs> this is the sort of headline. Um, if we don't work in an ethical context, in a, with an ethical pair of specs, all the things we've been talking about, science, art, science, you know, forget about them. Mm. If you work um, in a way that's disrespectful, it's um, in some ways not recognizing and being aware of the values of the patient or where they're coming from and, and so on and so forth. I think the best way I can explain this uh, or clarify it, I'm a trainee, youngish, you know, not seen many patients. A 26-year-old nice guy comes in. So can I, how can we help you? He's been admitted to the unit that I'm working in. To cut the story short, he's there because the police said, if you don't go and get psychiatric help, we will be uh, charging you. Charging you with loitering with intent. This is the days when, you know, homosexuality is, is a crime. And loitering, you know what that means. I mean, you just don't loiter. No pickups allowed. So this really nice guy obviously doesn't want to be there. My values say, I don't want you to be here either. Why are you coming to me? You know, but uh, my boss says, oh, look, we can help this guy to convert to heterosexual. I read the literature, at, by the way, at this time. So I, how, how long ago was this? Like, this 19, late 1960s. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> Seems yeah. like another century, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, it's in my lifetime, you know. Yeah. Um, and bear in mind that homosexuality was only um, removed from the American Psychiatric Classification, DSM, in 73, yeah. which is, uh, what, 50 years ago. So, you know, not that long ago. Anyway, look, uh, this guy... He's not there out of any wish of his own. My boss says, look, uh, we can help the guy. And my, and my boss was not, uh, you know, a, a horrible man or anything. And guess what? Tom, our psychologist, is an expert in this. What we call the treatment is aversion therapy. <laughs> and what Tom has done is create a set of slides. Some of them are of heterosexual themes and others of homosexual themes. And what we do is that we give electric shocks to him, to the person, when they see a homosexual theme. A little uh, bit like that, <laughs> that movie, um, The Clockwork Orange, I think. Clockwork uh, Orange, yeah, yeah. you got it in one. Oh, gosh, yeah, oh right. dear. You know, I, I looked up uh, the literature. I see an article coming out of Oxford from John Baycroft. I ultimately landed up in Oxford as a, as a worker, and I met John, I got to know him very well. And he was a you know, man interested in sexual deviations, then called. Nowadays, we call it paraphilias, you know, fancy Greek title. Anyway, this guy had to go through this. Damn, I feel like swearing, you know. I feel mm. very angry about this. Mm. But was I unethical or was I just unaware? I thought, well, this is the way it is. It mm. works, you know. Mm. Uh, we must try to make people normal. And now, of course, we have this gigantic political battle going with transgender. Mm. Uh, I've been quite involved with that for, you know, when we talk about it today. But it's gone right into contemporary politics. But um, anyway, that made me 
Uh, by the way, the paper by John Bancroft was in the British Journal of Psychiatry. Twelve patients given aversion therapy, not uh, not a double-blind trial or anything, just a, you know, a, f- a pilot trial, saying we have managed to change the sexual thoughts, feelings of seven of the twelve oh, with gosh. aversion therapy. Yeah, right. It's just mind-blowing now yeah. when I think about it. Yeah. It's like, a, you know, another century, another culture. Yeah. Anyway, look. A rush to uh, what happens uh, uh, just a little while late in my own career. Um, and I'll make this very brief because it, it, it's, it has shaped my entire life, mm-hmm. career-wise, I mean. Mm-hmm. I see it a little letter in a, in a journal, British journal, saying, we, the undersigned, have reason to believe that uh, the Soviet uh, psychiatric profession has been using psychiatry as a means to suppress political and religious dissent, opposition. And that's all it said, more or less. If you're interested, please drop us a note and join our working group. That was what it was called. Well, I couldn't believe my ears. My ears you know, what? All psychiatrists, all doctors, all healthcare professionals are decent, ethical people, aren't they? Anyway, um, I just joined this and for the next um, many years wrote two books, several articles, and was, um, if you like, protesting against this pervasive abuse of our profession, psychiatric profession, actually, as it happens, but you know, with the other healthcare professions involved as well, until we got it, got rid of it in '85 when the Soviet Empire collapsed. The book was called "Russia's Political Hospitals," published in '77. And essentially, we were managed, and um, I, together with a, a, another an academic political science type guy, Russian history match. Uh, we managed to identify over 200 examples of this labelling of dissent yeah. as mental illness. And uh, we got a lot of help from Amnesty International and so on and so forth. Look, these are two extreme examples of how the mental health professions have been uh, misused, perverted from their noble aim of helping humanity, right? Yeah. But since those days, and going, going now much more into you know, the, the mainstream, I'm a great believer that you've got to be aware of all the decisions you make day in, day out. You know, I am having to lock this person up because he is screaming that he is you know, the devil and he's uh, just about to tear down his family apartment. So I, you know, is it ethically permissible? Well, it must be, surely. But you've got to, you know, it's a weight upon your shoulders. You've got to think through this very carefully. So mental health law about coercion and about detention and and then about persuading people to do this rather than that because you think it's in their interest and so on. So uh, right now, as we're meeting in the, in the course of a psychiatric congress, uh, I'm giving a paper on codes of ethics. Mm-hmm. For 50 years now, we have we've had documents, they're called codes of ethics, uh, introduced in 1973 by one particular association in the US and, and now imitated by 15 others. So out of 143 associations we looked at, which says, look, you should respect confidentiality. You should always ask for informed consent or get informed consent. You should, and so on. So there are 10 principles in our the code that I have been involved with for 30-odd years now, five editions. Things have moved along quite nicely, but all I would say is, look, anybody who's listening to this, if you could bear in mind that anything and everything you do in in, in mental health is to naught, it's to no purpose unless you're mindful and sensitive to the ethical dimension of the work. 
you can pick up the code, by the way, yeah, uh, yeah, through the uh, yeah. website. We'll provide that with an address. That's yeah. our code. I mean, they yeah. need the other codes too. And um, it, it might sound a little bit funny, but, but I have to say, when I face a clinically complex, I'm going to say case, but uh, situation or patient or person with mental illness, um, I often find myself trying to step back a little bit and using, try to use principles of ethics or, you know, actually, <laughs> it's, it's a lot simpler than that. I, I often think, what would I want to happen if this patient was my mum or my oh. brother, you know, and that's, that's kind of my way of kind of mm. trying to, um, trying to make sure that um, um, what I'm doing is ethical. And, but I think it's, it's a very, very important yeah. part of what we do. Yeah, well, well I think that's a yeah. terrific point you're making. Um, I'd say empathy is closely related to that. Yeah. You know, you, you, empathize, you empathize with what you can empathize. Yeah. A, a psychotic, you know, who's talking as if they're you know, from another planet, very difficult to empathize. Impossible, you'd say. But if you say, look, she's, she feels like she's my mum, you know, yeah. as this, if you know, in her depressive state or whatever, yeah. uh, that, that's a, a lovely way of, um, no, but of sensitivity, compassion, empathy, awareness, understanding of others. No, I, I go along with that. You can't afford to do too much of that. <laughs> no, no. Because no, then you know, you'll yeah. get, you've got to still be detached in the end because you've got to make a decision. You know, is she uh, treatment resistant? Uh, is she... Uh, uh, but, you know, when, when things get hard, it's kind of nice to... Well, it's, it's kind of useful to step back a little bit. Oh, reflect. Con- Look, yeah. um, I've got a note here. Mm. I just took down a note about what messages do I want to leave people with, you know. Oh, I want to ask you so many more questions. <laughs> but this is my last final question mm. for you today, Sid. Mm. And it is, look, I only finished my training three, four years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm just starting my professional life as a psychiatrist. Good luck. <laughs> now, yeah, and you've been you've been a psychiatrist for what forty? Uh, don't remind <laughs> me, for God's sake. That's called unethical. <laughs> so, what I want to ask you is, what kind of advice would you give to someone like me, or someone like someone? What, what what kind of advice would you give to me who's starting this journey? Look, there's this Greek word hubris. You know, <laughs> pride. I'm not going to be hubristically. There's <laughs> a word like that. Um, Neither should I be so humble as to say, oh, you know, I've got nothing to offer. When you've worked in the field for a long time and, you know, I have studied and I've done a lot of research and a lot of writing, you know, I'm proud of what I've managed to um, achieve, uh, but there's always more to achieve. But this is what I would say. The first one is humility. And I learned this from, uh, I'm Jewish, from one of my Jewish forebears, you know, uh, Maimonides, great Jewish physician, among other things, 11th century. And uh, talking about uh, medicine, he wrote 12 medical books, and uh, they're they short things. I mean, not. in the various writings, you pick up the notion of humility. He says, look, don't pretend you know things when you don't. Mm. You know, don't be arrogant and that sort of thing. So humility, I think, in, in mental health is particularly, well, I think in all of healthcare it's vital because there's so much we just don't know. We yep. started right yep. at the beginning saying, you know, yeah, there's no, so right. much more to yeah. learn. Yeah. So look, if, if you don't know something, say, look, I'm, we're, we're not really sure about this eating problem. You tell a mum about her 16-year-old kid, uh, but we're going to do our best to look into it and, and try and get an, an idea and an assessment and test and so on. So that's what you know, humility. It's a big word, and uh, but 
uh, uh, humble, you know, to yeah. be humble is another yeah. way of putting it. Yeah. The other thing I would pass on to you, she is um, perhaps, you know, one of the most important things in my life, which is something I'd call openness. Um, and another word that people use is receptivity. If I determine that, you know, X equals Y, and I stick to that faithfully, no, you're four years out. No, forty years later, you say, <laughs> "No, x equals y." I know that. I've, it's. I say, "How do you know that?" And so on and so forth. But somebody then, you know, an Einstein type character, comes and says, "No, that was what we thought." You know, yeah. then now we've discovered through MRI or this or that, or the other. It's completely up the other way around. So, ears open, you know, eyes wide open, and be open to. Anything and everything, you know, that that may uh, shape and change uh, the way you see things. And um, something like lifelong learning. You know, some people say, you know, I finished my degree and I did my accredited training and uh, now I'm ready to go. I I think it's the wrong way of looking at it. I'm ready to start. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And you've done four years, you know. Four more years when I ask you something, mm. you'll, I hope you'll be saying, look, I've learned a, a lot about yeah. know, whatever, family mm. work or thing. Mm. Um, but what I, I still haven't learned much about is you know, some other subject. Mm. Uh, Aristotle said you, you live your life learning until you die. Mm. Called it phronesis in Greek. Uh, and he eventually translated roughly as practical wisdom. Mm. I don't know if you're ever wise. <laughs> I'm not wise, and mm. I, maybe you'll be wise. But it, practical wisdom means that you know you you know how to do certain things better than you did. If you can only be um, frenetic, you know, chief phrenesis thirty years earlier it would make life a lot <laughs> would help us a lot. So I, I think those are some of the the, the things that have um, left me, well, as, as important landmarks. If I may just give one other one, which is a bit on the amusing side, actually, and it, it doesn't quite make sense intuitively, but I'm going to call it stumbling. Well, yeah. Now, when you stumble on a, on a banana peel, mm. what happens? You've, you may fall, you may break a leg, yeah. or you may... Um, slip and say, oh, gee, I didn't know I had this, you know, something you discover something about. Oh, I thought my balance was far better than... Mm. So I once interviewed Sir Dennis Hill, was one of my teachers when he'd retired, Sir Dennis Hill. The interview's been published and, they, and we can, again, put them on as a resource. And um, I said, Sir Dennis, you've uh, worked in all sorts of interesting areas. You, how did you go from one to the other mm. uh, and achieve uh, you know, as much as you did? He said, I stumbled upon them, and he gave examples. And I won't, you know, one more time. You, you can read the interview, and by which he meant that I, I was doing work in the prisons, and then a warder st- said such and such, and I stumbled upon the idea, or I noticed that, you know, for the first time ever. When you stumble upon something, you know, it's it's sort of it takes you by surprise. So, so, do you recommend stump, stumbling <laughs> yeah. in uh, becoming uh, you know, a proficient and experienced healthcare yeah. specialist? And that's more or less what he said. And I have stumbled many times. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you stumble and you break a bloody you know, yeah. bone and it's not pleasant. But, you know, it's, you, you, t- you, you have a go and you, you, you know, you've got to have a bit of courage. Yeah. Uh, and some stumbles don't work out and others do. Not all his stumbles work, by the way. I think... 
that's um, that's probably a good point to finish. Thank you, thank you, Sid. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of MHPN Presents in conversation with. Um, you've been listening to myself, Shuichi Setani, and Professor. Sydney Block, and I want to thank Sushi for uh, being such a wonderful, not an interviewer, I think it was more like a conversation, you know, I really enjoyed the, the opportunity. Thank you, Sid. So we, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. Um, and if you want to learn more about Sid or myself or me, uh, or if you want access to the many resources we've referred to, go to the landing page of this episode and follow the hyperlinks. You can also go to the landing page to find a feedback survey. MHPN values your feedback. Please follow the link and let us know if there's anything we can do to improve our podcast in the future. Stay tuned for future episodes in the series of In Conversation With or listen to other MHPN podcasts. Uh, Thank you very much for your commitment to and engagement with interdisciplinary person-centred mental health care. Uh, So with that, it's goodbye from me. And from me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 